Awesome, guys. Well, we're going to dive right into this, and I'm going to stick really close to my notes because I'm going to need to, and I got a lot of them. So if I branch off and I'm wandering, if you see me out over here, I'm not connected to my notes, and I'm going the wrong direction. Um, and so uh, what I want to show you this is first, okay, is the testimony of Matthew, it begins by introducing God's mission and missionary. Who's the missionary? Starts with the J, runs the Jesus. Jesus, good job, all right, not bad. And so it begins with the mission and missionary uh, of Jesus in chapter one, and it ends with, in chapter 28, God's mission and missionaries, the church in chapter 28, sending them out. And so it's important, there's a really important connection between chapter one and chapter eight, God sending his son and his son sending his church. And so as we're going to go through Matthew, it's important that we understand that something happens, a transition happens between Jesus and these people, you guys, okay? It's really important that we see that. Now, the mission, uh, it's important that we describe what the mission is, and the mission is really simple. It's to carry the good news of Jesus's work in his word and deed and in our word and deed to the nations so that they may be redeemed from sin and reconciled to God. Does that sound familiar, friends? Okay, good. But the transition of the mission from Jesus to his people is much more complicated than that. It's not just a simple handing over a baton to you guys to take the mission of Jesus, to become a missionary of Christ as the church. You have to first be transformed, all right? From the inside of who you are to the outside of who you are, you have to be transformed before the mission can be transferred from Jesus to you. And this is true for Matthew, who writes the book of Matthew, and it's also true for Greg Brooks and whatever your name is, okay? There has to be a transformation. Now, I want to bring it all the way to our context, and I want to talk about where we are. And what I'm about to read and I'm talk to you about is really important because there's a hang-up that a lot of us feel because we don't even know who we are, Okay? Understanding what I'm about to talk to you about is super tricky, especially for me as a millennial. Do I have any other millennials in this room? Be proud about it, man. We're, look, we've done, we've done amazing things, all right, and caused amazing problems. Um, is there anybody from Gen Z, if you even know you're in Gen Z, raise your hand. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, a few of you guys. All right. So here's the thing. As a millennial, it is really difficult, and I'm going to speak for millennials, um, whether you like it or not, because I have the microphone. Um, but millennials, I'm going to speak for us, okay? Because us and Gen Z, it's really hard for us because we are suffering from what is culturally and widely understood to be an identity crisis. Now, I'm talking for millennials, but the reality is our parents have it too. It's the reason why we have it, okay? So before we play generational snobbery, uh, the reality is all of us are struggling with this, but especially the millennial and Gen Z generation, okay? And so what do I mean by identity crisis? What, what is that uh, that I'm talking about? Well, first, uh, let's talk about what causes it, okay? What causing this identity crisis for this current generation is it the environment that we were raised in, especially in the West, because in the West, we have detached ourselves from any kind of paradigm that has God or there being a God as the founder of the world, a creator God. So automatically, we're kicking off our uh, environment with something that is just untrue. And so we're having to navigate the world without a God. Now, second, uh, the thing that's going on uh, with this is we are sending out our kids. I was sent out. You're sending out your kids on this human expedition of self-discovery. Okay, the world is not defined by there being a God. It's defined by whatever you can definition you can come up with, and so we're given a high five, pat on the back, and say, "Go out there and discover who you are, and don't let anybody say any different." Okay, so all of the listen that sounds really cool and exciting, but that isn't an, an amazing amount of weight put on a human being's shoulders in a massive world with billions of people. For me, this tiny little person, to go out and go, now you figure out who you are and what you're about in this big, great world, okay? 
Go out there and discover and figure out who you are. Now, second, uh, the fragmentation of the modern family has robbed this generation of our belonging. There's this massive gap for millennials and Gen Z and a lot of the generations of who are my people, who is my dad, who is my mom, who are my family, who are my people, okay? And so this obviously has led to uh, the success of the Ancestry.com type websites. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody done that? Anybody spit in the cup and sent it in? Okay, you don't want to admit it? It's okay. All right, I know there's a little big gov, you know, conspiracy theory things going on around here. Um, but the reality is they're super successful. And why are they super successful? Because we have a deep inner longing to know who we are, to know the people we belong to. In the United States, the melting pot has had its side effects. And one of the side effects is we've forgotten where we come from, okay? So there's been a fragmentation of the family. There's been a forgetfulness of where we come from. And so where do we come from? Who do we belong to, okay? Now, discovering our ancestry, in discovering our ancestry, we can only capture fragments of our true identity. There is a truth in our ancestry maps, but not enough to reveal who you truly are. So I, what I want you to do is I want you to imagine a little tiny mirror, okay? A little broken mirror like this. When I'm holding up this mirror, okay, no matter how far I pull it away, can I see my whole self in this? No, I can't. Okay, also this is super blurry because Eric gave it to me and he uses this to look at sewers, so it's a crap mirror, um, and this mirror is crap, all right? So like I can't, I can't see much. It's blurry. I, can get, I see a picture of me, but looking at that, I hope I don't look like that, and, and so here's what I want you to think about, okay? Uh, imagine that you're sending out these, these 20-year-olds, these 16-year-olds, these 18-year-olds, these 30-year-olds into a society, and you're saying, go and discover who you are. Now, there's a lot of things in our society that are really helpful for building up an identity. All right? Is there any Eagle or Chief fans in this room? Okay, Eagles. Okay, love it. All right, cool. All right, no fights in here. Um, so, but listen, here's the thing. I, I was watching a TV show, and it was actually showing how sports teams can do a really great job of uniting men around something. Am I right? Okay, if you knew there was another Eagle fan in the room, you're like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about, right? And you kind of feel a little unified. But here's what I want you to understand. When we look at our own sexual identity as a way of figuring out who we are as a person, it's a tiny little broken mirror, and we can't really see who we are. When we're looking at a sports team to figure out who we are, it's a tiny little mirror, and we can't see the complete picture of who we are. Is it helpful? Sure. Can it create community? Sure. But guys, this is also true of the church. Right? So, oh, man, I'm going to go find a church that's going to tell me my identity. Okay? I am a Baptist. I am a Methodist. I am a fill-in-the-blank. And still, those are just these tiny little mirrors. And what you guys got to understand is those tiny little mirrors are just little things that we're using to self-create. I need to go out and find some way to figure out who I am, and I'm going to do that through getting my education. I am a college grad. I am a biological male. I am a engineer. I am a, these things. And we go, okay, so that's who I am. But when we take those and we stack them up, there are a bunch of little broken pieces of mirror. And really what ends up happening is it, it, it overloads into a major crisis. Okay. Let me give you a good example of this. Anybody ever heard of the term midlife crisis? Okay. <laughs> there we go. All right. Uh, super funny. All right. So what is a midlife crisis? A midlife crisis, we say it's midlife. It's somebody in their 50s, right? They've come to some place in their life where they've dedicated their lives to something. It's a job, to raising a family, to doing all these things. And suddenly, they're looking around, and everything the world told them to do, to work really hard, to raise a family, to buy a house, to do all these things, they realize, they're like, this is just a broken little mirror. It's not showing me who I am. It's not enough for me. And so what do these, and I'm going to pick on the men, what do these men end up doing in this phenomenon called the midlife crisis? Well, what they end up doing is they end up going and finding new hobbies. Sometimes they go find new wives. Sometimes they get into new styles of clothing. They dye their hair. They get a new job. They get a new community, more education, new groups, new subgroups. They start playing pickleball, right? <laughs> now, I, I said pickleball because I knew it would make you laugh. 
Because we laugh and we mock men that go through this traumatic experience. But I need you to understand that the millennials and the Gen Z are going through this at 16 years old, at 22 years old, at 30 years old, and you have never given them any kind of foundation as to who they really are. And the stats are showing exactly what this environment is doing to them. They have the highest in history levels of depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, and suicide. And it's not funny. A 50-year-old is not meant to have a midlife crisis because they're supposed to know who they are in Christ. And a 16-year-old can know who he is in Christ and not have to rely on a gender change to find his identity. And you're blaming Democrats, but you're the problem. And so what we're going to do today, guys, you're going, how does he connect this to the genealogy of Jesus? I want to show you that through the genealogy of Jesus, the, the Jews got a little mixed up as well. And Matthew is trying to reveal to us that you will never know who you really are until you really know who Jesus is. And so as we look at this genealogy, we're going to look from a 30,000-foot level at uh, God, the God of Israel and the blessing to the nations, who Israel is supposed to be. So that genealogy is the entire history of Israel. It's the Old Testament. I'm not about to go through every single one of those names, all right? And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Okay, great. Um, then we're going to zoom in. We're going to cut our, our, our height in half, and we're going to actually look at the two most important figures in the genealogy. Matthew tells us who they are. You guys want to take a guess? Starts with a D, starts with an A. Who is it? David and Abraham. We're going to zoom in, and we're going to see how God makes a promise to David and Abraham, and that promise to David and Abraham is being connected to Jesus, and it tells us a whole lot about who Jesus is. And to the Jew, it means a lot, but to me, it means a whole lot, okay? And then we're going to zoom into zero to about seven feet, because I think that includes all of you, all right? And we're going to talk about why should this matter to you today? You know where we're going now? Let's start at 30,000 feet. Let's get a big picture view of where we're trying to go. So you've got your Bible there, but I'm going to be taking you kind of a little bit of everywhere. Let me start in the very beginning. I'm going to say it very quickly. So if you're new to the church, I'm going to end up being too fast for you. But if you've been around and you've read the Bible a little bit, this will be super familiar, okay? In the beginning, God did what? He created the heavens and the earth, right? And then he filled them with plants. He filled them with fish. He filled them with, uh, with foliage. And then he filled them with Adam and Eve, human beings. Now, in that beautiful place that he created, he created it innocent. Not perfect, innocent. And in the innocence, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. It's like really like spicy and awesome. And, but what ended up happening is God gave them an opportunity to either choose to go, God, I just don't really want to trust you, or God, I trust you, and I'm going to obey what you have to say. So he gives them one rule. And what happens, guys? What do they, what do, they do? They break the one rule. Would you have done the same thing? The answer is yes, okay? And so they break that one rule, and what they do is it severs a relationship between human beings and God. And so a loss of understanding and identity begins right there in the garden, okay? So they leave, they go out, and they begin to uh, grow into a people. Now, in the first 11 chapters, you're going to see a lot of things happening, but it's chapter 12 where I really want to hone in, okay? The world has gone through so lots of transition, or, or a big transition, a lot of pain. They built this tower up to Babel. Uh, God tears it down because they're building it in their pride because they want to show that they're greater than God again. But as these families leave and they go to these different places of the earth, God picks one family, family and it's the family uh, whose patriarch is who? Abraham. So in Genesis chapter 12, you need to write down some notes on this. Genesis chapter 12 Verses 1 through 3, God chooses a man named Abram. He later calls him Abraham. And he says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your, fa your father's house, the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so we see this is the God of Abraham, the God of Israel. That's section one in our 30,000-foot view. Now let's move to section two. Section two is he is going to bless all the nations through this family. This family is meant to represent the goodness and the authority of Yahweh to the entire world. Okay, let me prove that to you real quick because it's important you understand this. Exodus chapter 9, okay, this is uh, when the people of Israel are kind of going to be working their way out of Egypt. He says, for this time, for this time, I will send all my plagues on you, on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Listen. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the, what? In all the earth. In just Egypt? No. In just with the, Israel, uh, with the Abrahamic people, Israel? No. The whole earth. Okay, let's go to... Uh, to chapter 12, okay? It says this, a mixed multitude also went up with them, with the Israelites, and a very much livestock and flocks and herds. Okay, so what I basically read that for was to show you that when the people of Israel get out of Egypt, is it just the people of Israel who go with them? Who else is going with them? Some of the smart Egyptians are going, uh, that guy is clearly God, and I want to go with him. I'm not staying with Pharaoh no more, Okay. And so they leave with them, okay? Fast forward to Exodus chapter 19. They're now at the mountain of Sinai. And listen to this, okay? The Lord called uh, to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen that what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Right? And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They're meant to represent. They're meant to be, hey, you are going to be the picture of my people. And the way that you live is going to do something for the world that I need you to do. And then listen to Psalm 67. It doesn't get much more explicit in the Old Testament than this. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Selah. That your way may be known on the earth. Who's, who are we talking about? Are Christians around? No? Okay, no. Uh, he's talking to Jews. Listen. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity. The guide of the nation, oh wait, what did I say? And guide the nations upon earth, Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Okay, so Israel were the people that God chose to serve his redemptive purposes to the world. To redeem what? To redeem what happened in Eden when humanity rejected him. Not Israel, humanity a purpose that was clearly not limited to Abraham's family, but was meant to serve as a light or an ethical model to the world, revealing that there is a God. His name is Yahweh, and he is the God. You hear? So this is a promise made to Abraham. Okay, now, how do, does Israel do at this representing of God? Okay, they fail dramatically. Okay, read your Old Testament. It's just a, it's just a mess. What many Jews failed to, and so here's the thing you need to understand now about modern Jews, or uh, the Jews of Jesus' day. What many Jews failed to understand, especially in the time of Jesus, was that God did not select Abraham because he deserved it. Abraham was not a good guy, okay? And nothing displays this quite like the genealogy, all right? When you look at the genealogy, it's, if you know anything about your Old Testament and the guys that are in that list, it's a bunch of gong shows. Abraham gets picked to be the guy He's supposed to represent God to the nations. He goes down to a nation called Egypt, and then he gives his wife over to the king so he doesn't get killed. Yeah, some good representation that guy is, right? Then his son Isaac follows in the same footsteps and gives his wife away 
because he's following daddy's footsteps. Then Judah, then you want to see how like people, I love when people go, hey, listen, the Bible is just, you know, it's these scribes that change things to make it really great and awesome. I'm like, you have not read it apparently, because then there's Judah who comes along. And Judah says the scepter will not leave Judah. Judah's horrible. Judah was terrible, right? He ends up sleeping with a prostitute who ends up being actually his daughter-in-law and he gets her pregnant and that continues the line of Jesus. Like, that's like, like what? There are soap operas that are better than that, okay? And so it is a thing. So you're supposed to see something in that, that the line leading to Jesus is actually a line of a bunch of sinners. You see, even David, it says David, right? He has Solomon, right? By who? It doesn't just say by Bathsheba. It says by the wife of Uriah. Talk about reminder of some of the problems that you created, okay? And so 14 generations go by from Abraham to David and then David to the deportation, right? So the people get deported. Why do they get deported? They get deported, deported because of their sin. And so listen to this. What did I just read you earlier? Israel's supposed to be a representation to the world of God's goodness and greatness. But they fail to do it. And then there's this deportation in the middle of Jewish history. And what does God do? He takes the people of Israel who are supposed to represent him to the world. He takes them out to the world to discipline them through the nations. It's upside down and backwards. They are failing horribly. But this is what is crazy. They get released. They come back. 14 more generations are listed after the deportation of the people to Babylonia. Now, what does this reveal? It reveals that even when Israel or the world is faithless, God still is faithful. Those 14 generations after the deportation are proving that God does not stop his promises. But what is God doing? Is God now bringing them back out into the land? Well, we read in Ezra and Zerubbabel that they come back and they rebuild the temple and they rebuild the walls and and all that stuff. It's like, okay, they're back. Is God going to now continue to try to use the Jews to do it? Well, really, when you read it, you go, not really. Because when they rebuild the temple, there's something missing. And what is missing? Jeff, you know the answer? Oh, no. I put you on the spot, Jeff. Well, what's missing from the temple is God's presence. So Solomon's temple has the fire of God, and they see God, like visibly see the manifest presence of God. But they come back, and there's no presence of God. They don't see fire. It's not even there. Now, so what do we have here? It looks like it's just meaningless. It looks like God's not involved, but the true reality is we know that he is. And so the question that we have to ask is, what is God doing and when is he going to do it? And section four of our first point at 30,000 feet, the fourth thing I want to really show you is he's going to do it at just the right time. All right? He's going to do it just the right time. And this is the beautiful part of the third segment. There's a lot of names after Zerubbabel, and we don't know Jack Diddley Squat about those guys. We don't know nothing about them. So why are they even in there? They're, they're important only like, you know, those three little dots when you get a text, right? It's coming. It's coming, and you go, okay, cool. I know that they're at least typing, right? That's all those names are really for. It's a dot, 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 because a word is coming. And in John's gospel, he says, the word has come, and the word is God, is Jesus. Those names are showing you that God has not given up and he's going to continue to do something. And so after 400 years of silence, we get Jesus. And this is what I love. Paul says it like this in Galatians chapter 4. All right? When is Jesus going to do it? When is God going to finally come to fulfill his promises? Well, he says it like this. Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Like, I love that phrase, at the fullness of time, at the right time. Uh, Matthew says, at the 14th generation, this is when he came. My uh, world literature professor in college called it the Christ event, and he showed us for a whole semester how all of literature funnels towards this Jesus, this Christ event, and everything since Jesus erupts from Jesus to the rest of the nations. 
Jesus is the center of history, and he came exactly at the right time. Amen. I love that. I'm just so pumped out my mind about it. Okay? So from a 30,000-foot level, what does this reveal to the Jewish friends? Because Matthew is written to the Jewish Christians, okay? And so what does this reveal to our Jewish friends? It reveals that God is faithful to keep the promise that he made to their forefathers. So if you're a Jew, you're going, oh, praise the Lord. This is the guy who's from the right line. He's from Abraham. He's from David. But also, it's that God pro- God's promise is meant to be shared with the Gentiles, which for a Jew might be like, a do what? But that's been the way it's been since the very beginning, right? Did I show that to you? God's wanted to bless the whole world through this people. They failed, and he's sending somebody to succeed. It reveals that Jesus checks the boxes of the Messiah is supposed to check genealogically, and it reveals that God is intentional sending his son at the right moment. Now, from a 30,000-foot level, what does this do for you, and what does it do for me? Well, it reveals the goodness of God towards all humanity. It reveals to me that God is faithful. It reveals to me that when I memorize Lamentations 3, 21 through 23, and I wake up in the morning, I go, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. That's not just for the Jew. That's for me. Come on. All right. Let's zoom in a little bit. Let's get things a little bit more fun and awesome. Okay? We're going to go down to 15,000 feet. Y'all ready to drop down? All right. Thank you. So now we're going to go down 15,000 feet, and we're going to take a look at two men, because this genealogy is filled with 42 generations, but there's two men that Jesus is placed right next to, and you see them in verse 1, and they are who again? David and Abraham. Good job. All right, let's go. So let's go to verse 1, and this is really, really important, okay? And so the first thing I want to show you from 15,000 feet is the importance of Jesus' name, what his name means, and what Christ means, but why he's also put right next to David and Abraham. So verse 1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All right. First thing I see here, and maybe you see this, whose genealogy is this? It's Jesus' genealogy. Is this David's? Is this Abraham's? This is about Jesus, y'all. That's what this is about. All right? So the first thing that Matthew makes clear is this is about Jesus. This is Jesus' genealogy. But even more important, Jesus is not just placed to the two greatest Jews in history. He's placed above them. He's placed above them. The name Jesus means the Lord saves. Do you know that? It means the Lord saves. Christ means anointed one. So what does that tell you, Ben? He is the anointed one to save, right? He is the Lord's anointed to save. Saying that he's the heir means that he is, if he's the son of David, who is the great king, he is the king of the Jews. If he's the son of Abraham, who's the father of the nation, Jesus is a father of a nation. Okay, so he's the heir, he's the son of. Okay, this is amazing, guys. Look, I know you guys are going like, all right, Greg, can we move past the six-year-old stuff? All right, this is awesome. He's the great. So let's zoom in. So uh, the name may not be new to you, but the significance of the meaning is so amazing, guys, because the name Jesus is very similar to the name Joshua. And what we know about Joshua in the Old Testament, so I'm like, listen, I'm using a lot of Old Testament here because Matthew is intending that. So Joshua, he leads the people of Israel out of the wilderness into the promised land, right? He's like this conqueror that helps lead the people following God. So Jesus' name carries history. It carries meaning. It carries purpose, all right? But when you place them in the context of David and Abraham, it brings things to a whole new level. All right, so let's look at both of these men. Both of these men, whether you are a Christian or a Jew or a Catholic, almost everybody in English-speaking countries or everyone in the West knows about David and Abraham. Am I right? Everybody kind of knows who these guys are. Let me show you why these guys are so incredibly significant, okay? So David is the great king. He's awesome, right? He kills a big guy. What's his name? Goliath, great. And so he's got some failures along the way, right? Um, But he is said to be a man after God's own heart. But that's not the best thing that happens. You see, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a promise to David that has world-shaping effect, impact. Let me read it to you. 2 Samuel chapter 7, 12 to 13. This is absolutely on the mind of a Jewish Christian when they're reading this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David, 
I will raise up from your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? Forever. Verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay, let's simplify this. God who never makes or breaks a promise, makes a promise to David that he will raise up one of David's sons to lead an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, and that son is going to sit on a throne eternally. Now, in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew connects the fulfillment of this promise that is made to David with Jesus. He is, in Matthew's eyes, and even later, Jesus will show you that in his own eyes, he is the fulfillment of that promise. Now listen, this is a massive connection for the Jews because the anticipation of the Messiah, the son of David, meant so much, not for some theological uh, fun things discussed in seminary, It meant a lot for their daily life as they lived under the tyranny of a dominant and brutal and bloody uh, empire called Rome. And so if you think about the Jews who lived in that day, you can imagine that in the day of Jesus, talking around the table, there's probably a lot of talking about this king that would come. And they're going, man, we just can't wait till the king will get here, and we pray that he will get rid of the empire of Rome and establish his kingdom here forever and he will sit on that throne forever and he will reign and rule and we will be free. Don't you feel that? You don't understand. You're an American. You are for freedom. We've got freedom, right? And so you don't know what this is like as much as some people in our world know it. This is world shaping, okay? But not only is it world shaping for a Jew. Like, I just need you for a second to actually think about what that promise says and the fact that Jesus is it, okay? Can you imagine, we're heading towards 2024 where everyone's going to lose their minds again. Can you imagine, all right, a political leader who never loses, right? How bad did some of you feel? Like, you guys, we went through, and Cody went through like a deep depression, when Biden won, it's like everybody's like, all hope was lost and the world's going to split in half and Jesus will be here tomorrow, right? Could you imagine a political leader who never loses? They tried to hide and reshape the vote, he wins. They tried to use social media and cloud everything, he wins. They do whatever they want to do, he wins, he wins, he wins, he wins. All the political leaders, they die and a new one comes up and he still keeps on winning, Can you even imagine that? No, you cannot imagine. So this is crazy, y'all. This is nuts. So what's the proper response? If you're another political party, and this guy will never lose, you have thrown everything at him, what do you do next? Well, I think you have two choices. Number one is you take off your crown and you throw that to him, and you say, you're king. I'm thinking, think about the empires of the world. He says his kingdom will last forever. You just take it off, it's yours. Or the second thing you do is you go to war. You go to war. And we're going to see here pretty soon in a couple weeks that Herod does that. He goes to war against Christianity. Can I ask you guys something? How many nations have come and gone and Christianity still lasts? All of them. You think if if, if Jesus wants to continue to wait and maybe he waits a thousand years to come back, I don't think it's going to happen. But if he does, you think America's going to be here in a thousand years? Probably not. They didn't think Rome would ever disappear. And now it's a place we fly to go look at ruins. But the church is still alive. I didn't mean to go that far that fast, but man, heck yeah, that's awesome. All right? That's great. All right, let's keep, let's keep growing. So if this is the king, and he never loses, and he's doing this, what is his platform? What is the platform of this king? Free college? No. The, the, the free, the platform that he has, we find in the promise made to a man named Abraham. So I read it to you earlier in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. And I want to show you that it, just as God makes a promise to David for a house, kingdom, and throne that were eternal, he also makes a threefold promise to Abraham of a land, seed, and blessing. Land, seed, 
and blessing. You can memorize that. It's not hard. Genesis chapter 12, land, seed, and blessing. And so this promise from God to Abraham, God also promises to give him land, seed, and blessing, and he promises the land of Canaan to his seed, which means his descendants, okay? But God also promises that through Abraham, as I showed you earlier, he's going to bless the entire world. Everyone's going to be blessed, which is massively significant. And once again, Matthew ties that promise and the fulfillment of that promise to a man named Jesus. So what do we have when you put these two together? What we get is Jesus is the king of the Jews who has come to set up an eternal kingdom. And as the son of Abraham, his purpose is to bless the Jews and the nations of the entire world. That's a big deal. You start saying stuff like that in Rome, you get killed. And that, that's exactly what he's saying. Now, the massive but multi-million dollar question is this. What in the world is the blessing? What is this blessing that God wants to bring through the world, through this lineage of Jews? What is he going to do? Anybody want to know? Okay, listen. I know many of you, you already have your Christian answer floating around your frontal cortex, and you want to tell me exactly what it is. All right? I just want you to pause for a second and pretend like you don't know what the answer is. Just pretend like you don't know what that blessing is supposed to be. And imagine that you're a Jew, you're sitting at the table with all of your little children, okay, and you're thinking about what is this, and you're telling your kids about this, this blessing that's going to come. What do you think it's going to be? You think, just like Miss America thinks, he's going to bring world peace. Right? He's going to be the king. He's going to get rid of Rome. He's going to bless all the nations through Israel. And we're going to like rule the nation. And everybody's going to start to get along. And it's going to be wonderful. And he's never going to go away. All right? Does that sound kind of great that you're going to, man, you're going to have a pile of kids. You're going to get some land. Right? And you're going to have prosperity. Does that sound good to anybody is that not the American dream? That's just not God's dream for you. Because I thought about this, and I was like, hold on a second, but what about death? What about what's supposed to happen after death? What about all the consequences of the sin? What about the people who've sinned against me? Like, what? like are we going to get some revenge? Are we going to get this going to get dealt with? What about my sin? Is there really going to be a place where I have to face the punishment of my sin? What about that? If you really start thinking about eternity and everything after this life, what in the world is having a pile of kids, some land, and some, you know, some stuff? Isn't it really, like, meaningless? That's what Solomon tries to tell you in Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless. This is all meaningless because we're all going to die. Super encouraging, isn't it? That's the reason why the blessing is not that for you. And that's why when I introduce this whole thing, I'm trying to tell you, you keep trying to sell little tiny mirrors to get people this identity and fill in the life. And Jesus is going, it's actually a lot better than that. It's a lot better than that. And so this is where we have to zoom into zero to seven feet. This is where you get involved. You ready? Anybody over seven foot in here? That'd be wild. So this is why this matters to everybody, okay? It, in a light of eternity... Is having some land, a pile of kids, and a bunch of things what this is really all about? The simple answer is no, it's not. As I said in the introduction, having a family, land, and prosperity is not enough to complete the human experience. It's not enough. You guys got to be honest with yourself. It's not enough. You know this. It's why you're still on Zillow even though you just bought that house. It's simply not enough. It's not enough to restore what we lost in Eden. Every attempt at this endeavor has only produced fragments of the true blessing that God intends. The full picture of God's blessing is and has always been Jesus himself. Guys, he is the center of history. He is before history. He is the fulfillment of the prophets and the law. He is the fulfillment of your longings. He is the anointed one to save, and his salvation is from, from this fractured dysfunction, this slavery to sin that all of us are living in. He is that freedom. But listen, guys, this is what he says. John, or Jesus reveals why God sent him in John chapter 3. I'm going to read some things to you. I just need you to ask God to help you see deeply. He says, for God so loved the world, not just the Jews, not Israel, the world, that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him 
will have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In Luke, Jesus says why he came. He tells you why he came. He said, for the son of man, he said, I came to seek and save the lost. You who keep chasing and getting splintered and fractured in this world as you guys are looking for it in a home or in pickleball or in a state championship or in education or in your kid's success or in sports or in, you know, colored hair or whatever you're looking for. He said, I'm actually here to give you the thing you're looking for. I came to seek to save the lost. In Matthew chapter 3, John tears down the false fragmented hope of genealogies. So if you're looking for your family lineage and you want to find out whether or not you get to buy that, you know, kilt and that pattern and you get to wear it and play your bagpipe and talk about everybody, like it's like, I, I, you know, I come from Scotland, whatever. Like if you want to go like get in that, it's going to give you some life, but I want to tell you it's not going to give you the life because look at what he says. John says this, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, and he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. What did he just say? Oh, you think you've got some cool family lineage? You think that means anything? Listen to what he says next. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. I can go get some rocks, and I can make them into children of Abraham. You think you're cool now? You think you came because you came from a president or some king in England or whatever you think you came from? You think that is what really matters? Because they kill the kings. And so he just, he just tears it down. And in Matthew 19, Jesus tears down the false uh, fragmented hope that we put in personal righteousness and money. I'm trying to help you, and I'm trying to help me. This is what our Bible tells us. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Isn't that what we're doing with our kids? Hey, guys, go figure out what you got to do to find that fulfillment that means something to you. It's like even more confusing. And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Who is that? It's God. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? So he's like writing to you religious people, and you're thinking that you are okay in, because you're holding onto this fragmented, broken mirror of religiosity. Well, attend church, and don't do drugs, and don't get drunk, and you know, don't sleep with your girlfriend, and, and you know what, be like kind to my parents, and give locally, and, you know, and occasionally like donate my time, and therefore I'm good. Watch what Jesus says to that. He, sa- he says, the young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Well, Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect... Go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. That young man was sold the same bill of goods that you guys have been selling to millennials and Gen Zers for the last three decades. If we could just get rich, make some money, if we could get a great degree, and if we could be just generally moralistically good people, we're good. But we're still kind of looking around going, hold on a second, but I don't feel good. And we're killing ourselves at a higher rate than any generation. Do you hear what I'm saying? So clearly that's not enough. And and this young man is so blind, just like I was and my friends are, like he's so blind to realizing that Jesus is trying to tell him, hey, you want the real treasure? It's me. Get rid of all that stuff. It's a relationship with me and that's it. So friends, you want to know why this matters to you? Is because even though you're looking around to find this everywhere, and I, I know I'm standing up here on this platform, I hate this. Like, I hate this little weird relationship thing we do here because you don't listen to me like I'm trying to talk to you. You'll listen to me like I'm some pastor inside of a church just talking. Do you understand the difference? I'm trying to talk to you. So whether you're 65, I don't care. If you're 25, I don't care. The reality is all of you, if you look to anything other than Jesus, you will never know who you really are. And when heaven comes and you finally see who Jesus really is, you will wish that you did know who Jesus was. And so what does this mean for us today? Do I have any Christians in the room? That's what I'm talking about, man. Confidence, boldness. You guys are just so freaking awesome. Listen, 
If you're a Christian, this should mean a lot to you when it comes to mission. Because you can't go from Matthew chapter 1 and then embody Matthew chapter 28 when he says, go therefore and make disciples until you have the transformation of having a relationship with Jesus. You're telling me you've got a relationship with Jesus. And you're saying that that is changing your life. Not completely yet, but it's changing your life. Then I want to tell you Matthew chapter 28. Here's what this should mean for you. It should mean that you're going out there and you're helping young men and young women know that there really is a God and that he loves them. And they don't have to question about their identity because Jesus has an identity for them. He wants to give them a new life. And you're going to tell them what uh, Paul says in Titus 3, 3 through 5. He says, man, for we ourselves were once foolish. You're going to tell these kids, I was once foolish. I was once a slave, passing my days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and kindness of God our Savior appeared to me, he saved me. Not by my works, but by the washing of regeneration. He gave me new life. And now I just want to live to tell you, young man, that if you want to know where life is, it ain't in that girl. It ain't in that state championship. It ain't in the good grades. And I want you to be successful in all that stuff. But I want you to know something. You will never know who you are until you know who Jesus is. And I want to tell you who Jesus is. So Christians, if you actually say you believe that, but you don't do Matthew 28, I just want to put something before you. Either repent of that and start doing it, or you need to question whether or not you actually have made the transformation into a relationship with Jesus. Because Jesus' mission, he says, is to seek and save the lost, and then he gives that mission to us. So we need to embody that to others. All right? I got to sit, I was sitting at Pat O'Hara's, working on a message a couple weeks ago, and there's a dude sitting next to me, and he's like reading his Bible. And that to me is just an open invitation to be like, what are you reading, right? And I'm just like that guy. I'm always just interrupting people's day. And we got to sit, and this guy, uh, you know, we start talking, and he comes from the Catholic background, and we just start having a conversation about Jesus. And we start just like talking through it, and I tell him my story, and I'm hearing his story. We're talking live together, and I'm just engaging because I'm on mission. But I'm not some like chimpanzee in the zoo with glass in front of me where you guys come and pay some money to watch me live on mission. Okay? There's no gate, no door. God didn't lock me into this church. This is not a church. This is a building. You're the church. So you said you were. Now go be the church to others. Second, if you've got children, if you've got a family, you are absolutely responsible for laying the foundation in your kids' lives of discipleship. It is not those people downstairs doing that. They're doing that for an hour, and they're sanctifying that time by telling them about Jesus, but it's so I can sit here and talk to you and still say the words suicide and depression and sex and all these other things. I could talk to you like adults. So it's a beautiful thing. I'm glad they're doing it. Thank them for that. But it's your responsibility to raise them and show them that there is a God and show them how to follow him. Dads, we got to, that's us first, okay? Granddads, that's you as well. And there's some men in this room, there's some boys in this room who don't have dads. I grew up without one. But thank God there were some men in the church who came and grabbed me and said, let me, let me show you, son, how to follow this God. All right? Anybody want to go to mission with me like that? You don't have to go to China. You can do it right here in Cody. All right. Let me tell you uh, one more thing. If you don't know Jesus, okay, you're in this room, you don't know Jesus, let's just be honest. The worst thing you could do and the worst thing I could do is Pretend like you do. It is, listen, you need to understand, I said this to somebody recently. You need to understand, guys, think about this. It is not as bad to rape and kill a woman as it is to convince somebody they're a Christian when they're really not. You can argue with me. You're wrong. You know why you're wrong? Because one has an internal consequence. This is evil. But Convincing someone that are a Christian and then them having to stand before God and then for eternity be separated from him, that is the greatest evil. That's what Satan lives to do. Do not partner with Satan in that by saying that you're a Christian when you're not. And Christians don't partner with Satan by telling people they are when they aren't either. You hear me? It's not helpful. So I want to tell you, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I just want to tell you, I don't want you to lie about it. But I also want you to know that coming to faith is a beautiful, wonderfully easy thing because at the end of the day, you didn't do anything. 
I didn't do anything. I was a slave to sin, but somebody told me the gospel, and they told me that all I have to do is believe in Jesus, and I will be saved. But believing in Jesus means I believe in him, in the one I know him to be, which requires that I then follow him. Not believing once, believing for the rest of my life. You hear me? Some of you made a decision to believe in Jesus years ago, but you have not followed Jesus. So what you did is you talked about something way back when you were a kid. Make the decision today that you want to repent and follow him. Because there is things happening in our culture that are destroying our children. And God is looking to the church to be the answer. Because Jesus is the answer. You hear me? Uh, where'd Chet go? I don't know where he went. You right there, bud? That's what I'm going to do with the genealogy of Matthew 1, 1 through 17. All right. Let's pray and let's sing and let's thank God that he didn't give up on his promise, but he sent his son because we're here today celebrating him. Father, thank you for Matthew chapter 1. Thank you that when I was looking in a blurry little broken mirror, trying to find life in my sports, trying to find life in women and in pornography, trying to find life in lying, trying to find life in this just public perception of that I was something that you still stepped in to love me and care for me and rescue me from my sin, and you gave me new life. And I, Lord, I just wanted to just praise your name. Thank you. Because you changed my life, there are people in Cody whose lives have been changed. And it's not because of me. It's because of what you did. So all glory be to you. And I just pray that my friends will just be bold enough to really believe that you are who you say you are, that you are the king who sits on an eternal throne, who's setting up an eternal kingdom, who's come to bless the whole world with reconciliation with God, that we might find life and life everlasting. May they be courageous. May they stop being ticket holders who buy their way into zoos to watch Christians live, but they would be the Christians who live. And so as we sing this, Lord, we sing it to you because I know you're going to answer that prayer.